look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock. Featuring pro football talk, the Dan Patrick Show, the Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. This is entering week 16 in the National Football League. We're entering the holiday season, basically, and uh, I'm glad that you're going to spend some time with me this week. We've got two interesting guests. The first, I went to Green Bay last week, spent some time with Mike McCarthy, the head, the former head coach of the Packers. He wants to get back into it as a head coach in 2020. We talked about his prospects and what he intends to do differently this time around when I was in Green Bay. So I'll bring you that conversation. And also, Dan Pompey of The Athletic, who's got a very good story out now about Lamar Jackson uh, and also about Brian Piccolo, <laughs> who 50 years ago was an inspirational figure in this country, uh, some in the same way that Lamar Jackson is now. Brian Piccolo was a backup running back for the Chicago Bears who died of cancer and left an inspirational trail in his wake. Lamar Jackson, a very interesting story by Dan and Jeff Zerebeck of The Athletic. And we'll talk to Dan about that after you hear from Mike McCarthy. But first, I wanted to talk for a couple of minutes about Eli Manning. Now, many of you know that Eli Manning played what may have been his last NFL game with the Giants on Sunday when uh, the New York Giants uh, at home in the Meadowlands beat the Miami Dolphins 36-20. to It was kind of an emotional game for Manning. He had his whole family there in a box, and after the game, he essentially had them all come down to the field. Paparazzi was surrounding him, his kids, you can just tell the warm and loving embraces, how wonderful a time it was. He went into the locker room, got a game ball from Pat Shermer, the head coach, and he said to, to the group, he's not a big fan of talking in, in moments like this, but he said, there is nothing like being in, a, being in an NFL locker room after a big win on Sunday, boys. And you could just tell the warmth the the feeling in that room for Eli Manning. And I've been a little hard on Manning and on the Giants for their very sentimental uh, uh, you know attitude and treatment of Manning in the last couple of years. Uh, and my point basically has nothing to do with Eli Manning. Uh, you know, how do you not love this guy? He's been a very good player for the Giants. Uh, won two Super Bowls. Uh, and, you know, I've lived in New York for, uh, you know, over 30 years. And one of the things that I've really valued is when you watch people do things the right way in sports. And to me, Eli Manning and Derek Jeter have been the two guys who've done things the right way. Uh, and, and I'll just tell you one very quick story. I remember covering the, you know, the Super Bowl in Arizona when... Obviously, the Giants shocked the Patriots. There was the famous David Tyree helmet catch. So getting to know Tyree a little bit, I knew him some because I lived in Montclair, New Jersey at the time, and he was a big high school football star at Montclair High School. So I knew him some, but I didn't know him that well. And as he traversed the country in fame after the helmet catch, I remember him telling me this story that on Friday before the game, when he made the great helmet catch against the New England Patriots, on Friday he dropped four passes in practice. And the Giants were so beat up at the receiver position, Tyree mostly was a special teams player. 
And they needed Tyree desperately to play well that week because they didn't have any other bodies. So after practice, they get on the bus, go back to their hotel. They get off the bus. Tyree is really down because he figures that, oh, my God, they need me and I'm dropping balls all over the place. They won't have any faith in me. So Eli Manning comes up to him, drapes his arm around his shoulder and said, hey, listen, I'm coming to you Sunday. I've got all the faith in the world that you're going to come through for us because I've seen it too many times. Don't even think about today. Just think about the great days you've had. We're going to have a great day on Sunday. And Tyree said that made all the difference in the world to him. And that's just the kind of guy Manning is. It was not a famous story. It was not anything that was in the headlines in New York. But that's just who Eli Manning is. And whatever happens to him after this year, wherever he goes, whatever he does, uh, I really wish him well. He's been a terrific guy to deal with over the years, even though uh, I've written a few things and said a few things where he's given me a look sometimes. But uh, he's a professional, just a very, very good human being. If this is it for Eli Manning, congratulations. He's been a great one. And a reminder for my podcast fans, you can see me on TV this week a couple of times. Back in August, I did a really fun thing. I got Brett Favre and Patrick Mahomes to get together to watch some tape along with Andy Reid and then to go out and throw the football around. I felt like I was watching somebody come out of Field of Dreams to play catch with his dad. And in fact, I actually said that to Patrick Mahomes during the thing. And Favre goes, do you even know what Field of Dreams is? Anyway, Film Session, Mahomes and Favre, airs Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern on NBC Sports Network. And watch Sunday night during Football Night in America. I'll be having a feature on that exact thing, the Favre-Mahomes the Favre meeting on Football Night in America. Hope you enjoy it. And if nothing else, set your DVRs Thursday. I know you'll be watching the local news, but set your DVRs and watch that before you watch Patrick Mahomes Sunday night on NBC. And now my conversation with Mike McCarthy, the former coach of the Packers, trying to get back in it. So, Mike, here we are. We're doing uh, a little visit with you at your place in Green Bay, just outside of Green Bay. And I just want to know if you could give me you know, sort of the Cliff's Notes version of how you ended at this sort of compound, you know, six or eight miles outside of of Lambeau Field, your your longtime 13-year comfort zone, and basically describe your property to us. Well, uh, you know, Jessica and I have lived here since uh, 2008. Uh, she originally built the home, but just over the years, we were able to acquire the some acreage around us and um, Shortly after the Super Bowl, we decided to build the barn, and it's uh, it's been a real. This is uh, no barn, by the way. Yeah, it's a big barn. This is, <laughs> this is this is like an office building of a barn. Yeah, this uh, yeah we got I got I got a little outside of myself, definitely in the design phase of it. So, but it, it's it's been great for us. So, it, particularly the winters, uh, being up here, the ability to you know play basketball, and you know we have a game room here, and um, you know weight room, and. And even the garage has served as a you know good place to have a really nice Thanksgiving dinner. We had 45 people here for Thanksgiving, so it's a multi-purpose facility that uh, we're very fortunate to have. Why the full court basketball court, kind which of, is incredible? Yeah, we kind of fi- we kind of fell into that. It was supposed to be a much smaller court. Uh, then there was a desire to play tennis, so then. It grew to, you know, thir- your you wife know, wanted to play tennis out there. It was mentioned. You know, it was <laughs> mentioned. I don't know how much tennis we played, but so it, and it turned into a full, full scale college size basketball court. And, you know, the kids love it. And it's, and it's great for them too. Cause uh, when they, when they play here, obviously the conditioning aspect of it, they're, they're used to playing on big courts. You told me that university of Wisconsin, green Bay, before they played in an NCAA tournament, <laughs> Came yeah. over here to practice. Yes, uh, yeah, they had a couple practices over here, and it was and it was a great experience because that's when the our 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 boys were in grade school. So for them to get to see those guys practice and see it live, and uh, yeah, it was a that was a neat experience. But 
just to, just to break the monotony of you know get, getting off campus or over there at UWGB. Mike, what has the past year been like for you? You were let go by the Packers almost a year ago now. So what's that been like for you? I mean, really the best way to describe it, it, it has clearly been a gift. Um, I am so thankful for the time it has given me personally, uh, just to, you know, being an NFL coach for a long time, just being in the coaching profession, uh, just really to have the ability to step away and, and be a normal father, you know, be a normal husband, and that that has been uh, it's been incredible. Just the, the the quality moments that we were able to have, but you know, frankly, it's really given me an an incredible opportunity to take a deep dive professionally. Just to go back and get into things um, that I haven't really looked at in quite some time. Um, go back really over the course of my whole career. Really organize a lot of things. I mean, just different notes from. You know the old days, old West Coast offense notes and Kansas City run game things, and you know so that that part of, that, that's, that's been fun. And then the formation of the McCarthy Group, just we're you know combining with three other coaches and a and a football tech individual to just really pound through volumes of of, of video and just really get prepared and in Excel and and frankly the the goal was just to improve. And uh, it's been a, a really healthy six months. How long did it take you to get over getting fired? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, there's, there's definitely a transition period. Uh, you know, winter doesn't help, but that, that's for sure uh, with the timing. But um, you know, it, it, it was a, it, it you know, comes and goes there in, in the early months. But I think really once we were able to get back into the football, you know, the Having Jim Hazlitt, Frank Signetti, Scott McCurley, and Justin Rudder around, we were meeting, you know, one week a month throughout the spring, and then continued. Took a couple months off for vacation, and continued through the fall. So, that's really helped me probably more personally than it has professionally, just to get back into it. On the night that it happened, that mm -hmm. you got fired by the Packers, you told me that it totally took you by surprise. You had no idea it was coming that night. So how did you feel that night when you were told you're being replaced? Well, the timing of it was, was the surprise. I mean, I, I, I think, um, you know, the way the season had, had, was going, uh, the, I, I thought at the end of the season, if we didn't make the playoffs, that there could potentially be a, a change. I, I think like any coach, particularly that time of year, I mean, you're, you're emotionally spent after a hard loss at home. Um, you know, in December in a game, you, you felt like you had a number of opportunities to win. So, yeah, I was, I was surprised more with the timing and, and just really the process of it. Do you have any anger about it? I'm past that. There's, I think the phrase, you know, be better, not bitter, is something that really applies to, to where I am today. How do you think you have changed as a football coach in the last year? Changed? Uh, I think I'm more rejuvenated, frankly. I, I think it's been great to dive into the old concepts and see, you know, really, uh, you know, the variations that come off it. Uh, the, we do a trends tape every week. It's, you know, it's a, it's a cut up that runs through, you know, filters that we've established using PFF. We we're talking about uh, those guys earlier. It, so just staying on top of the trends and the different things that people are doing more, and, and just seeing how guys have been real creative uh, with the variations. So. You know that that's that's been a lot of fun. So, you know, with that, you're you know, just getting ready to how you would build it and that your that next offense. And you know, as as we know, it's really gonna who you're working with will be a big part of that too. So, it's been really just the opportunity to go back and start to redo playbooks. You know, cut ups. Um, I was I was working on my first you know my first talk to the football operations group uh, last week. So just doing looking at old. I've looked at a lot of old talks, you know, old presentations that I've done over the years, and and just because going back through them, frankly, is just getting me back in the mindset to, to get ready to interview. At the end in Green Bay, there was a lot of talk about how whether whatever the reasons were that it had gotten a little stale here, and that that's one of the reasons they wanted to make a change. Do you think, in a football sense? that you just ran your course here and got stale a little bit with this offense? 
I think it's a convenient criticism. Uh, I, I don't agree with it, and, and but I think it's like anything. When you, you are criticized, you need to shine a light on it and look at it. And and I think this this time with uh, with with the other coaches has has given me that opportunity that you know you you, you have to be honest. You know we didn't. You know, we got away from motion and shifts and in multiple personnel groups more than, than we've done in the past. So you look, you know, you look at the why, and it's because at the end of the day, you're the one that's really in tune with why you did this and why you did that. So you go back through those things, and, and frankly, you you apply it to the next opportunity. How do you think you will be better? What are you going to tell a club president, a general manager, an owner when you go and interview, say in early January? about how you're going to be better this time around? Well, I know how to build a world championship program, and my awareness and my instincts will be much sharper. Uh, that, that's one thing I do know, and I feel very confident about because this process has given me that. So, um, and the opportunity to express that and, and how we'll do different things and how you see the vision of the new opportunity is you know something I'm really looking forward to presenting. Let's talk about one or two things that you have found out maybe about things you want to do differently in your offense coming into 2020 or maybe things you've learned from watching the NFL in a way that you could never watch it uh, when you're coaching Mm -hmm. because then you're so dialed into your own team and that opponent. Now you can watch 32 teams every week. So... Give me an example of how you feel that you're going to take something you've learned this year into your new world. Well, I think it's like anything. You, 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 when you have time to reflect, uh, the brutal honest with yourself is, is where you, you're going to get the most value. And, and I've looked at every coaching staff, every decision, um, you know, installation of offense, you know, scheduling. You know, we practiced on Fridays. You know, then we didn't practice on Fridays. So. When you have a chance to look at all those things, um, it, it gives you, you know, a more distinct, you know, focus on exactly how you'll approach that next one. So, I mean, one thing, just to give you a, a, a direct answer to your question, I, if you're going to call the offense, if you're going to be the play caller on Sunday, you need to be the, the major installer, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So that's, that's something that I got away from. Um, in the second half of my career there in Green Bay, and so that, that how did you do it in the second? Well, half we spread it out, and in, in, in you know the 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 why we did things, they're all sound judgments and good decisions, and you're trying to evolve your staff, you're trying to, you know, you're you're trying to let coaches grow. You're you know this coach was charged a third down, and then you wanted to grow his experience, and he got switched to red zone. So you, you know, you're you're, you're trying to do different things with with staff development. That frankly, the priority of staff development probably took a little bit away from, you know, the game planning process of how we did it in the early years. So, you know, it's not a really right and wrong. It's more of a preference. Yeah. Why do you think it's important for the guy who is installing to be the guy who's calling the plays? Because, and I think it's the same thing on defense too. Because every player in that room needs to know why you're calling that play, and he needs to hear it from you why he's calling the play. You know, you you, you rely on a a long-term relationship with your quarterback or your offensive coordinator or your offensive line coach, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's not as good as if you're in there installing it and, you know, doing it each and every day. When you have watched football this fall, mm-hmm. give me a coach or two who you say, man, that guy, I never got a chance to see that much of him before. This guy's mm-hmm. really bright and doing some good things. I don't really watch the coaches. <laughs> no, but, but I, what I thought, they're doing on yeah. offense. I mean, I, I think that offensively. Yeah. I think I think Kyle's having a great year in in San Francisco. I've really re- enjoyed. What it. is it about him that you like? Oh, he's just the aggressiveness. You know, I, I think that you know everybody has a style and approach. Um, I, I I've always liked you know the way he calls a game. It's it's a relentless uh, approach, and and I think you know we can all get into a situational funk. Because you, you get so situational specific of how you want to attack the opponent that sometimes you can you know take your foot off the gas a little bit. And I think he does a, a great job of keeping his foot on the gas. 
who else that has been interesting to you on either side of the ball when you've watched all these games this fall? You know, I, I watched Mike Pettin just because I, I really wanted to see the second year of the evolution of the defense. I think second years, whether it's a quarterback, you know, a, a, you know, a particular uh, offensive scheme, or, you know, or defensive scheme. Uh, Mike Pettin obviously is uh, here in Green, Green Bay. Bay defense, yeah. yes, and just to see what, what you know how they're evolving defensively with some of the things that we did last year, and so I think he's done a great job of building off of particularly the pressure concepts and and third down. How I, different are they with the with the Smith brothers with Zedarius and Preston Smith? Oh, I mean they're, they're, the personnel is different, but I, I think he's doing a really good job of the combination rush. I mean, getting Zedarius and Preston on the same side. You know, a number of times, you know, tr- really trying to dictate the, the turn of the of the center or the, you know, the four-on-three or the three-on-two matchups. So um, doing a really good job of creating one-on-ones in, in their pass rush. When you watch games now, is it different than when you come in at 5.30 Monday morning and start analyzing the tape of your next opponent? How different is it? to watch games on TV on Sunday? I mean, it's totally different. I, I actually watch the red zone a lot more than, than actual, you know, I'll watch the afternoon games where we sit down or the night game. But, you know, we have the all-access, you know, the all-22. So Wednesday, Thursday mornings and, and Fridays are more game type uh, that, that we'll watch. But we're doing so many cut-ups right now that we're kind of really, you know, more involved in that. And, Explain and, and, exactly what that means. Uh, just just cutting up different you know situations. Um, we got some Peter King cutups that we'll get to here in a little <laughs> bit, but uh, it's you know with the trends the trends tape that you and I talked about, you know the RPOs, uh, you know the, the red zone passes. So there's you know there's a lot of different things that 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 the whole league falls into that filter that's that, that we're we're breaking down each week. How difficult is it for you? To sit down and watch a Green Bay Packers game, I was yeah, it was difficult early in the season. I, I think that I enjoy the game more um, on the coaches' tape than I do with the emotion of the of the TV. So that that's what I've found. So um, it, when I, it, when you keep it about the players and the and the football component of it, uh, that's uh, that's healthy. When you first watched a game back in September, were you able to just watch it? Or did you have to turn it off? Oh no, I watched the uh, I watched the opener um, against Chicago, and and frankly, the September games because uh, I've never got to enjoy September in Door County or in Green Bay. So August and September, uh, you know, outside of the week that the coaches were here, you know, we, you know, we were still doing a number of things, you know, with the family. So uh, there was a couple Sundays that you know I, I didn't watch it. So. Um, but yeah, it's really keep, keeping up with the, with those guys is you know it's it's something that's that's part of our process, um, but it, it's not something that you know that I absolutely feel like I need to do because once again they're doing a lot of similar things that we're looking at, so they do show up in the cutups. One other thing, just history thing, how did you part with Aaron, and how are you with Aaron Rodgers right now? I think everything's fine. I think he's having a heck of a year. I think really, you know, all the relationships that you that you have in Green Bay, it's it's uh, you know the way it ended. There's a you know a little bit of a step back. So, but it looks like everybody's doing well. It looks like he's doing well. So, it's all good. It's got to be strange though, after doing something for 13 years, and then all of a sudden you're not going to the building. And not only are you not going to the building. At all, you're not going to the building at all. It's over. It's to- and you're living in the same town. How how hard is that for you to to you to manage? I mean, it was a challenge in the beginning. Uh, I think um, I don't know how you treat driving, but you know, you obviously live in a bigger city, so uh, there's times where driving can be mindless in a sense because you're thinking about so many other things, and and then you you know you look up, you're going you know going on the wrong exit to because you, you know you're, you're programmed to to drive a certain way for, for so many years, but no, it's, uh, it's been good. I've, I've had some, some funny moments. I, I think your sense of humor is, needs to be intact. If you ever decide to live in a small town that you coach the professional team for, for 13 years. So you have to be able to laugh at yourself. And, I, and I've had, I've had plenty of those moments. Um, 
Why did you choose to stay in Green Bay? This is our home. I mean, this is, uh, this is our home. Uh, Jessica's from here. You know, our children were born here. You know, our oldest daughter, Alex, lives out there in L.A., but uh, this, this will always be home base. You know, we have, we have this, uh, 20 acres here. It's a sanctuary for us, and um, so we're excited about the next opportunity, but uh, there, there was really no, we, we never even considered leaving. Let's talk about the next opportunity. In an ideal world, you absolutely want to coach in 2020. What would that opportunity look like to you? I, I fit. I mean, that's that's what what I'm looking for, and, and I and I would assume that's what you know the ownership's looking for, and and I think it has to be, you know, a two-way street there. So I'm, I'm looking to for fit, particularly you know with the general manager. Uh, you know, a good young quarterback would is a is a is a focus, and uh, or, or or a great older quarterback. Usually those jobs don't open up, but uh, so I mean you, you look at things on your priority list, but at the end of the day, because um, you know my my wife will ask me, people will ask me what I'm looking for. What I'm, what I'm looking for is really just to keep an open mind, you know, be an open mind, be myself, and uh, I, th- I think both sides will know if it fits, and if it fits, and and hopefully we'll. We'll work on it and get going because, you know, I, I've done this long enough. I, I know what it feels like. I know what it needs to look like. So, and that's, I'm excited to, to get in front of these owners. What will you say to an owner, a general manager, a club president about how it ended here? Because certainly they're going to want to know why didn't it work out at the end with Aaron Rodgers in this offense? See, I don't look at it that way. You know, I don't think that's, you know, that's not my understanding of, you know, why my 13 years came to an end. I don't think it was just all about, you know, the quarterback and, and the offense. You know, I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, you have to win. You know, and there's more that goes into it than just the offense and and the quarterback. So, um, you know, I, I think. It's it's an it's an opportunity and experience that that has made me better. I I know that because I I went through it and I've had plenty of time to reflect on it. Um, you know every relationship you know with every player, coaches, um, schemes. Um, I, I think schemes a crutch. You know I I think that you know that's uh, that's a debate that we could you know you don't have enough film in your camera. So uh, you know. Scheme is an evolution in this league. You, you have to evolve. Um, you want to stay on the front end of it. That, that's a challenge. Um, I think we've done that for the majority of my time in Green Bay. So I've had a chance to re- reboot, refocus, uh, rejuvenate, and I'm looking forward to the next opportunity. Mike, when you look at yourself as a football coach, not necessarily scheme-related, but... Is there something that you feel like you have sort of attacked in this year off and this rejuvenation year? Is there part of being a football coach that you feel you're going to be better at in 2020? Definitely, because, I mean, the, you've had a chance to step back, make sure, you know, your, your, your versatility and the multiplicity, you know, those tanks are full and... You know, I, I think like anything with success, you can get, you can, you know, go down a certain path and, and you can stay down there a little too long. And, and I, that, that goes back to what I said earlier. You have to evolve. And it's just not on, just on, not on offense or defense or special team schemes. You, you know, you, how you train a team is, is probably more important. Um, you know, the health of your football team, you know, the wellness of your football team, you know, the, the, the continuing education of your, of your coaching staff. Uh, how do you move, you know, the education and and the experience that everybody in that football operations? How do you move that forward? That that's to me, that's what creates winning. So, I th- I think when when you don't have success, there there has to be something you pin it on. Get it that that's our industry, but there's so much more that goes in. There's so many more variables that go into winning than uh, you know what plays you run on offense. You know, Bill Parcells, I was having a conversation with him last year during the hiring process. Mm -hmm. And he expressed to me that 
and a lot of the guys who were getting hired, he didn't know. Mm-hmm. And he expressed to me that a lot of these really smart guys, let's say on one side of the ball or the other, mostly offense, but a lot of these smart guys have never had an opportunity to run a program, you know, to be a head coach. Mm-hmm. And he told me, he said, if I am looking for a head coach, I want a guy who's been a head coach. And one of the reasons I want that is that there are so many more things involved in being a head coach of a team than in sitting there and designing a good offense that's going to overpower Team X on Sunday. Now that you've had an opportunity to be away from it for a year, tell me if you think that's true. If so, what is it about being the head coach of a whole program that is an advantage. Well, I think number one, I agree with it 100. Uh, I, I think it's that's that's the way I see it. I've told the story countless times about my first year as a head coach. Uh, we started off one and four, and I can remember Marvin Lewis called me and said, "Hey, how's it going?" And I said, "Marvin's the head coach in Cincinnati, even at, then, right?" At, at the time, correct. As uh, 2000, 2006, and he says, "How are you doing?" I said, "I never." To be honest, I never thought it was going to be this hard to win, a, to win a damn football game as a head coach. And he says, whatever you do, he says, just stick to your guns. Don't change. He said, you're there for a reason. Trust your instincts, you know, and stay the course. He said, don't change now. And, and that was great advice. Um, I, I can't tell you how much that that helped me through that first year because, I mean, we were one and four. Um then I think we got to four and eight, and then finished eight and eight. So, and and then I thought that really propelled us into the into the next year, two thousand seven, the NFC Championship game. So, uh, it was great advice. And now that I've been able to look back on that, and that that's the reality of it. Your instincts and awareness is 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 so much higher because of the experiences that you have, and it's not about just scheme on one side of the ball and. Frankly, I've spent probably three times as much time on what I'm going to do as a program as what I'm going to do on offense because that's that's where the advantage is. I mean, you, you you've seen this league, and particularly since 2011, parity comes in so many different forms. It's not just in the draft; it's also in now how you train your team, how many hours you can practice, and so it's everybody's has to do everything the same. So. Where is the advantage? You know, give, me, give me an example if you can, whether it be sleep, a sports psychologist, yeah, or things. whatever. But, but what do you think, what are you going to emphasize a little bit more, say, on this chance than you did uh, in Green Bay? A little bit more? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think the, you know, the analytics in Green Bay was really was really growing uh, the last, you know, three or four years there. You know, that, that's something I, I, I feel can go to another level. Um, can you give me? Can you just tell me what about analytics? Because honestly, when people think about people who would love analytics and really welcome analytics, they wouldn't think you would be at the head of the line. Why? And maybe you are. Why have you embraced it? Well, that's really how I how I got into the league. Uh, you know, I was a quality control coach in 1993, handled all the game analysis, and so learned it from the ground up. And my thing with analytics, and, and people used to hate, hate the term when I'd say, you know, statistics are for losers, because it's really the application of the information from statistics is where the value is. And and that's something that I've, I've always, you know, pushed forward. So when you really break that down is all this analytics and the third-party analytics in our our business now are, are better than ever. I mean, there's some there's some great companies out there that are, are are giving you great information. But the the real test is 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 how you know how to utilize it. You know, how, how's it show up in your schedule that has been minimized in training camp? It's been minimized in in, in spring. So those are the thought processes that you know. It's been nice to take a step back and think about it and think it through. And you know, we already have our calendar done for next year. You know, so it's. You know, given having conversations and, and and going through those thoughts, you know, in May or you know in September when you know you really don't have to get into it till April and May. You know, 
you know, six, eight, nine months from now. So that has been very helpful. You know, it's just, you're having a lot of conversations uh, through this, this McCarthy group that you don't really have the time. Because, you know, once, once you get that new job, you hit it running and you got to hire staff and things are moving so fast, you know, you, you really have to have the groundwork laid. And that's what's been great about this time off. We've been, we've been able to refine some of the things that we've done in the past and able to reduce some things and, and really clean, clean a lot of them off. So it, it's been a fun time. Two other things. You said to Tom Pelissero of NFL Network, something I thought that was really illuminating, that your family needs football. What does that mean exactly? Well, I just think, you know, we, we, we've gone through a, a time in our life, you know, this is our hometown. Um, so that, that's what we've established personally. Um, but professionally, you know, Dad has, has, has gone through a transition. So... Um, and, and I, Can I think, you tell your kids want you to coach again? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's frankly, it's what drove me to go back. Because I mean, there was a period, probably back in, in in February, March, you know, that I thought, you know, we, this is. I mean, we're, we're so fortunate to have what we have, and uh, you know, financially, in, in a great position. So, do, do you really want to do it? And so, that's what I think we all need to go. You know, when you get knocked on your butt, to take a step back, and and I know I miss it, but the fact that I I know that they want me to coach again, it's um, you know, it's been enlightening. And I wonder now, when you've had an opportunity to sort of take a breath and to rejuvenate yourself, do you feel you'll be a better head coach in the future, and why? The answer to your question, yes, um, and I just think because of the experiences that that I've I've been able to go through in the past, but but to have the opportunity to reflect on all those um, opportunities and now be able to really give a lot of thought to how you apply it moving forward. So um, I'm not going to be you know I'm not going to be surprised by anything. Uh, usually, when you come into a situation and something comes up as a young coach, you you think it might be A, B, and C, and maybe ask for an opinion here and there, and next thing you know, you're looking at five things. Where, when you go through it, you know it's A or B, and, and I, I, and that's really the definition of experience. Mike, I'm going to end with this. Mike Holmgren said a long time ago. I remember talking to him about this job, and he said, you know, it's a little bit different when you drive by the school that is named for Vince Lombardi. Because in a lot of towns that have NFL teams, schools are not named after coaches. It's a different place. You got to coach here for 13 years. Regardless of how it ended, what's your sort of shining moment? And what's your feeling having been the coach here for 13 years about that experience and that era in your life? My shining moment? Oh, I, I just think that the first time you, you go out on the Lambeau field, and that was a bad day, too, because we, we lost to the Chicago Bears in the opener. But I, I, being fortunate enough to coach here as an assistant before 1999, I knew, I knew what I was coming back to. And, um, and it, you think about the first game, but frankly, probably the, a shining moment for me, the, shine, the first shining moment was really my interview. You know, I'll never forget walking in into Lambeau Field in, in, in the doorway. Bob Harlan meets me and, and says, you know, welcome home. And, or, or welcome back, I'm sorry, welcome back. And he made it feel like home. And, and it was just the night before my interview. And I, and I thought, you know, I got a shot at this. And I could just tell in his voice, not, not that, you know, Bob was doing the interview, but that that in itself, you know, it's it's just the the entry into a special place, and so the shining moments is really down the ability to work there every day. I mean, I, I love going to work there every day. I enjoyed I enjoyed it. Um, the people there, there's just so many great people, um, and I miss you know I'll I'll 
always relish that. I'm, I'm past missing it because I'm not allowed to miss it no more. So <laughs> I'm not crying, Roy, either. So I mean, I, I'm gone. So I mean, it was a great, uh, a great 13 years, and and I'm, I'm thankful. You for that. coached the Green Bay Packers longer than Vince Lombardi. How incredible yeah. is that when you think about it? Yeah. Well. He won five championships, <laughs> so we know it really counts. But yeah, no, it's uh, no, it, it's uh, I was so fortunate, and once again, it's it's something that uh, you know we'll always cherish, and and you know we'll always be a part of this community. So, but uh, it's a great place. Mike McCarthy, thanks a lot for joining me. It's been great having you here, Peter. When you use Zoom, every day is a little better. Zoom Video Communications, with the web's best-reviewed video conference service, used by millions to meet one-on-one or hundreds at a time. Zoom Video Conferencing lets you connect face-to-face with anyone, across town or around the world, with flawless video, clear audio, and instant sharing of files, video, anything. And you connect through any device, desktop, laptop, tablet, smartphone, or conference room system. Zoom video conferencing, Zoom room, Zoom video webinars, and Zoom phone puts state-of-the-art tech at your fingertips and lets you do business at the speed of Zoom. Look, if you're not using Zoom video communications, the only question I have is, why not? Come on, I'll make it super easy for you. Visit Zoom online and set up a free account today. Try the most affordable and reliable video communication solution on the market. Meet happy with Zoom. So happy to be joined this week by Dan Pompey of The Athletic. I've long, long admired Dan's work. He's a veteran NFL reporter. And since coming to The Athletic... He writes so many must-read things that I could, I could refer to him as the, uh, or I could refer to his stories, could refer to his stories as the football story of the week in my column, almost every week. He's got two of them out, and we're going to touch on each one of them briefly this week. One is on the life and times of uh, Brian Piccolo, um, who uh, is a former Chicago Bears running back who had an incredible impact on so many lives in this country and around the world, quite honestly. Uh, he was discovered to have malignant uh, cancer 50 years ago and died uh, only eight months after it was discovered. Uh, so we'll, he had one really good story on that. And also this week, he's got a story out uh, about Lamar Jackson uh, written with Zef, Z- Jeff Zerebiak of The Athletic. Um, and it's Lamar Jackson changing the game, inspiring people, and pushing the boundaries of what is plausible. And Dan, welcome uh, to my podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Pleasure to be with you, Peter. I always enjoy talking to you and our friendship. And uh, it's an honor to be with uh, the best in the business. Oh, you're so nice. Well, thank you. Um Let's let's start with Lamar Jackson. Dan, for those um, who are not familiar with the story, because as we're recording this, you know, on Monday, December 16, the story just came out today. It's just a very interesting look at what a different kind of person Lamar Jackson is. And the most interesting part of the, the journalistically of this story to me is that you called Lamar Jackson on second reference, not Jackson, but you called him Lamar. Why? <laughs> well, you know, uh, I think that's what everybody calls him. And, you know, it dawned on me. I actually had written the story initially uh, calling him Jackson uh, on every reference after the first. And I kept looking at it. It didn't look right to me. Like, who's Jackson? You know, his name is Lamar. Uh, you know, we have different ways of, of calling uh, different quarterbacks uh, by their names. I think, you know, we call Tom Brady, Brady. Uh, we call some quarterbacks by both names. Russell Wilson is Russell Wilson. He's not Russell. He's not Wilson. 
but I think uh, in the case of Lamar, it's just Lamar. And, and what is the reason for that? Well, I guess it's a distinctive first name, which is part of it. But I think the other part of it is that, um, you know, I, I think there's people feel like they could connect with him and they feel like they know him. And uh, maybe the relationship is a little more personal or intimate uh, than it is with him than it is with a lot of other athletes. And I think that's bearing out uh, in a lot of different ways this season as uh, his popularity just skyrockets. I know uh, Fanatics is the uh, online supplier of his jerseys. And uh, on, on Cyber Monday was the biggest sale day ever in their history. And they sold more jerseys of Lamar Jackson than they did of any other athlete in the world that day. And, and his sales are up 500% globally this year. Wow. That's an, that's an amazing thing. Dan, you've got to tell the story about the, the Ravens fan who traveled from the Midwest to come and see a Ravens game and was disappointed when after the game he thought he was going to get to shake hands and maybe even take a picture with Lamar, but he just barely missed. Can you explain what happened to this fellow? Yeah, it's a great story. So he was walking with his wife and his four children uh, back to their hotel uh, out of M&T Bank Stadium. And uh, all of a sudden, Lamar and Hollywood Brown come driving down the street, and uh, they yell out to Lamar, Lamar, stop, stop. We came all the way from Kentucky to see you. And uh, right there in the middle of the street, Hollywood Brown stops the car. Lamar gets out and goes up to them and, you know, has a five-minute conversation with them and signs their, their autographs and takes pictures with them. And, uh, you know, it, it was a moment that that man and his family never will forget, obviously. And it's something so rare. I mean, think about all the athletes uh, who you've been around, Peter. How many would do something like that after, after a game? To stop your car, get out of the car, middle right. of traffic, and go talk to talk to people, fans who uh, really want your autograph. My Lamar story is that uh, in on the third day of the NFL draft this year, Lamar Jackson has earned the starting quarterback job for the Baltimore Ravens, and the Ravens have asked him on that Saturday <laughs> afternoon at two o'clock to appear at the fan fest, the draft party in Baltimore staged by the team. He said, sure, I'm going to a concert in New York on Friday night, but I'll be back in time for that on Saturday. And so he shows up at the concert. He has a good time. He's there with a couple of teammates. On Saturday morning, they can't find one of the teammates. They had split up on Friday night, and he figures he must be just sleeping in because he can't locate them right away. And so it's it's kind of getting close. He's got to go back. So he says, uh, listen, I'm going to go back, uh, but I'll come back for you later. So he goes, he spends one hour at this party, and he drives, gets in his car, and drives back to New York three hours to go pick up his buddy. They get back in the car, they come back, and the Ravens are saying, what are you doing? Why did you do this? There's 10 trains a day. He said, hey. You know, he's a, he's a friend of mine, and we went up there together. We were going to come back together. And I just <laughs> said, now this is a different guy right here. But you've got, you've got so many stories like that, and I mean, just he is a different person. He really is. And I think, you know, beyond the, the, the people part of it, you know, you're talking about a, a quarterback, Peter, who uh, was told he couldn't play the position in the NFL. Right? They wanted to. A lot of people, and I know I talked with a lot of people before the draft, smart people, front office people, who said they think maybe he should be a wide receiver. And, uh, you know, I think what John Harbaugh and the Ravens did with him is they really had, uh, you know, a vision for him to be something different and something special and something the NFL really hasn't seen before. And they've really adjusted and changed their offense so that it's unlike really any other offense in the league uh, probably ever. And uh, as a result, I think, you know, Lamar really now has become kind of a symbol of maybe the things that uh, we expect aren't always 
as, as they play out to be. You know, I think he's a symbol of opportunity and of possibilities and a vision. And, um, you know, he's got a chance, I think, to make an incredible footprint on the NFL and the city of Baltimore and really the whole country. And it's, it's going to be really exciting to watch. Um, Lamar Jackson is the Athletics 2019 uh, NFL Performer of the Year. What, what's the exact title that you gave him, Dan? The, the NFL Person of the Year, actually. That's what you're referring NFL to, NFL right? Person of the Year. Okay, good. Yes. Um, so let's, in our, in our couple of minutes that we have left, I do definitely want to touch on Brian Piccolo. And, you know, Dan, as we spoke the other day about your story on Brian Piccolo, I said this is, this is one of the first sports books I ever read, I Am Third. Uh, by Gail Sayers and Al Silverman, I believe. And uh, I was, I don't know, I'm guessing maybe 13 or 14 years old. Uh, And it was such an inspirational book, the story of Brian Piccolo. And I wrote about it a little bit in my column this week. But for those who don't know Brian Piccolo, who was he and why is he important today? Well, you know, he was a great college player at Wake Forest. Uh, led the nation in rushing, but was undrafted at a time when there were 20 uh, rounds in the NFL draft. And uh, Bear signed him as uh, an undrafted free agent. He was a fringe roster guy. Uh, he was a backup running back uh, who, uh, you know, was not a great player and he was not a, a person who would be remembered for his accomplishments in the NFL. Uh, in his... Uh, uh, what was it, 1970 season, he ended up uh, backing up Gale Sayers. And um, he and Sayers, I, I should say, too, were the first interracial roommates in the NFL. And, uh, you know, their, their relationship uh, is something that inspired many, many people and I think uh, opened the doors to a new way of thinking, uh, not only in the NFL, but really all around America. And, uh, isn't it true that, that Brian Piccolo actually pushed the Bears to uh, not just necessarily room by race, but to mix things up? I had not been aware of that, Peter. I had not heard that. Uh, my, my understanding is that was a directive of Ed McCaskey's, that he wanted to have uh, interracial roommates for the first time. And he asked uh, Sayers if he wouldn't mind rooming with Ronnie Bull, uh, who was another running back. And Sayers said, well, uh, he said, I, I don't mind rooming with a white man. Why don't you make it Brian Piccolo, though? Uh, and they had a great chemistry together. And they were always teasing each other. Uh, they, they, would, they would say things to each other that now if you said them, uh, you would be you know, banished from the earth because they were very racially insensitive. Um, but to get, to get back to, to what happened with Brian, uh, he came out of a game in 1970 against the Falcons after he scored his only NFL touchdown uh, with uh, a, a terrible cough and terrible uh, pain in his chest. And he said, I, I can't play anymore. And they went and took tests and ended up having a malignant spot on, on a malignant tumor, I should say, on his lung and uh, needed to be. Uh, removed. He had a, a series of surgeries and uh, a terrible fight over the next eight months that ended up uh, claiming his life. And, um, you know, no one really could understand it at the time, but I think now, 50 years later, it's all very clear what happened uh, was uh, that, that Brian Piccolo uh, really impacted thousands and thousands of people. Many people were able to live because of him because more than $12 million had been raised in his name by the Brian Piccolo Foundation. And uh, as a result, the kind of cancer that he had uh, now has a 95% cure rate. And uh, many, many people have lived, and this is a little personal to me because I had the same kind of cancer, and, and I was, uh, I, I, and I survived. And, you know, I, I have to think that maybe Brian Piccolo's death had something to do with it. It's amazing. I was just going to ask you that question. Can you tell your story of what happened, how it was discovered, and then how it was treated? Sure. Well, I uh, I had discovered that uh, this is probably what year is this? Maybe 1998. 
that uh, one of my testicles was larger than the other one. And, um, you know, I wasn't quite sure what to think of it at first. I ended up going to the doctor and taking some tests. And they said, yeah, you have a, a tumor in your testicle and uh, ended up uh, needed to have surgery and uh, treatment, you know, had a lot of radiation after it and uh, ended up, uh, you know, after it, it, it was a it was kind of a, a long, hard road for a while, uh, but ended up being cured and, and being uh, completely healthy. And, um, you know, uh, it, it ended up being something that uh, I think, uh you know, left a mark on me and changed my life really for the better too. And, um, you know, I ended up having, uh, uh, no problems, uh, as a result subsequent of it. And, you know, your, your body really is an amazing thing that, uh, is able to come back. And, uh, if you have one testicle, uh, that's all you need in life. So, uh, it's, it, uh, it, it's been an interesting journey. Dan, I'm just going to end with this. It has nothing to do with anything that we've talked about in the last few minutes, but it's just totally out of left field. Were you a little bit surprised to see Mitchell Trubisky on Sunday after the game in Green Bay question some of the ways that the coaching staff designed sort of the protection and some schemes in the game in Green Bay? Yeah, I'm not sure that that was his intent. I think that uh, what he said, though, was absolutely accurate. You know, so uh, it's hard, difficult to argue with with what he said. Was, was that you know maybe we could have helped the offensive line a little bit by moving the pocket, and um, I think that's been a, you know kind of an ongoing issue this year with uh, Trubisky and some of the play calls. So. Uh, yeah, I was, I was, uh, I guess I was a little, anytime you see that something like that, but I don't think, you know, sometimes you see guys say that kind of thing, uh, to try to get a message across. I don't believe Trubisky did that. I don't think he's that kind of guy. Yeah, I didn't think so either. I just, I mean, when I read it, my first reaction was because everybody had sort of raised eyebrows, you know, in the wake of that. And my reaction was, I think he was mostly just trying to be honest about how he viewed what was going on on the offense, you know? Exactly, yeah. He was giving an honest answer to try to explain, uh, you know, some of the, the struggles that the Bears had against the Packers. But what he said was, like I said, completely legitimate and something that the Bears need to address moving forward and, and take a good, long, hard look at. Dan, I know I said that was it, but I, got, I want to ask you one other question because you wrote, you wrote another story a couple of weeks ago that I really thought was interesting, and I've never heard of this at an NFL facility, that uh, Virginia McCaskey, the matriarch of the Chicago Bears, uh, w- you know, and I don't remember exactly how it came about, but there is a, uh, there's a chapel slash meditation room, religious room, at Hallis Hall, where the Bears practice facility is, that is used by players, coaches, staff, and in fact, Virginia McCaskey. Can you explain this and how it came to be? Sure. Well, the Bears, uh, Peter, as you know, uh, had a $100 million renovation of Hallis Hall uh, this past year. And uh, one of the things that George McCaskey asked his mother is, you know, how would you like to have a a, uh, a chapel in this room. And uh, Virginia is a, a devout Catholic who goes to Mass every morning at 6.15. Her father, George Hallis, was also a devout Catholic and, and daily communicant. And uh, so she jumped at the opportunity and, and kind of dove in head first. was involved uh, in every aspect of designing the chapel, including some of the uh, minutiae and uh, really enjoyed that part of it. And, you know, I think the chapel is going to be kind of a, a lasting legacy to her. She turns 97 in January, and um, it's, it's a great uh, reflection, I think, of everything that is important to her. Uh, you know, I, I think it draws in, uh, you know, the ability to, uh, to spread her faith and, and to share her faith with others. And I also should say that it's not just a uh, Catholic or Christian room, they have uh, the opportunity to cover up certain elements of the room that are Christian, and they have uh, uh, certainly an area for 
um, people of the Jewish faith with, with, with prayer books for them. They have opportunities for uh, people of other faiths to uh, have their, their space there, too, and have their time. So it's something that's completely unique in the NFL, nothing like it. But, you know, as we move into this era where we've got these, these big tech companies that are uh, incorporating so many different aspects of wellness and health into their workspaces, it's something that uh, kind of makes sense. You know, the new Hallis Hall also has, for instance, uh, white noise pumped into to areas where multiple people are working. It has uh, a room for naps. Uh, it has an area, you know, a snack bar area where people can come and get refreshed and that sort of thing. So I, I think, you know, the, the chapel is kind of part of a bigger philosophy that uh, we're seeing uh, not only in the NFL, but also in, in a lot of the progressive companies throughout the country. It's really, really interesting. Dan, thanks so much for joining me and for, um, I said it was going to be short. It was a little bit longer and thanks for enlightening, enlightening me on, uh, on some, on so many things today. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed talking to you, Peter. Thank you. My thanks to Mike McCarthy and Dan Pompey. Uh, and I just wanted to take a moment and wish all of you as you go in the next two or three weeks, you may be listening to the podcast, you may miss them, whatever, but I just want to wish you a very, very happy holiday season. And I really, really appreciate the support, especially since I've come over to NBC. It's been a great time in my life, and I hope you enjoy the stuff that I'm trying to provide you. Have a great week, everybody, and have a great holiday season.